pause with me right now and just uh, let's just pray and ask God that he would give us uh, his words to hear and his words for me to say and as we look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to worship you. We thank you that, uh, that we can gather as your family and, and, and sing praises to you of the great work that you've done for us on the cross. And Lord, may we never get tired of singing about the cross and what you have done for us. Lord, we're thankful that not only did you give us a Savior, but you gave us your word that we can look at it and we can learn from it and, and we can see how you want us to live our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning as we, as we look into your word that you might challenge us fresh and anew on what it means to follow you. Lord, that as we look at, at, at these two great examples from the end of Philippians 2, that, that their lives and their faithfulness might challenge us in our lives to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm thankful for the opportunity to continue in our series, uh, The Joy of the Lord in the Book of Philippians. And I don't know about you, but uh, I'm thankful for Ray and for Matt and for them starting off our series, and now you're stuck with me. And uh, so I apologize in advance for that. But hey, last week we started in, the, in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, and Matt uh, kind of walked us through the first 18 verses. And, and the one thing he said last week in, in those verses, we have, a, uh, we have a, a champion to celebrate, right? Jesus Christ, he is our champion. And, and those familiar verses, if verses 5 through 8 says this, Paul says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. We have a champion to celebrate. We have the ultimate servant, Jesus, who was willing to lay down his life for our salvation. He died for us. What an amazing ultimate servant. And so last week, because of that great example, Matt challenged us. He delivered us a challenge. And the question is, am I a helper or am I a servant? And he put this screen up last week that kind of that works through the difference. You click the next one there. Uh, it talks about, hey, a helper is often concerned about what's convenient for me, right? I'll help when it's convenient. I'll help maybe when, when I get the recognition, but a servant says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve when it's inconvenient, no matter if I get recognition or not. And Matt challenged us to think in our own lives, am I just a helper or am I a servant? Am I one willing to, uh, to do what's necessary, even when it's inconvenient, even when no one notices, even when uh, uh, no one may ever notice, but I'm going to serve my Savior? And what a great start to uh, this chapter. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning. We're going to look at the verses 19 to 30. But before we kind of jump in there, I was talking to my mom this week about one of her favorite topics, Wesley. 
Um, that's, that's one of her favorite topics these days. And, and it's not that she loves her grandkids, but I think she, like us, was not expecting to have another little one around. And so, uh, and so she's getting to do this all over again. And last week, uh, my parents were, uh, were kind enough to, to come down and watch the kids where Dan and I got to go away for the weekend and go to the beach and had some nice time, a beautiful weather there. And so, and so she's full of all these new stories of Wesley. And she went home and she was talking to her friends about the weekend with Wesley and all these different stories and, and how his mouth doesn't stop, and you can never understand what he's saying, but he thinks you do, and all these kind of things. And, 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 and in the conversation, she got to explaining to, uh, to her friends that Wesley is kind of, well, he, he's kind of stubborn and strong-willed. And kind of is a nice way of saying that. Uh, uh, he is stubborn and strong-willed, and so he, her friends were asking her, well, where does he get that from? Where does he get that from? And, and it, I was happy to hear that her mom answered, well, he doesn't get it from his father. Because his father was a very chill kid. He was compliant. He was, he was, he was pretty, a pretty easygoing kid. That We didn't have any real difficulties raising him. And so if he didn't get it from his father... You can figure out who he got it from. I'm not going to say. Uh, maybe his mom. Maybe not. Uh, and so, you know, but as a parent of children, you know, you often wonder, is, is God, like, giving us revenge for the kids that he gives us, right? Like, how was I when I was a little kid? And I was encouraged to know that, hey, as a child, you know, I, I was pretty easygoing. I was pretty compliant that, uh, that, that they didn't have to worry about. As a matter of fact, when my sister would get in trouble, I would be upset. That, that's kind of the person that I was, that, that you know. And, and so, so it was nice to hear that, you know, I was a pretty easy child, that I was compliant. But but I remember growing up that people would call my twin sister and me the terrible two. And so I'm like, okay, so if I was a compliant child, why, why would people call us the terrible two? Now, I've heard of the terrible twos, and you have too if you had kids, right? That time period when, when toddlers are gaining their independence and they're fighting for their independence and trying to, to, to work through that. And that's a stage that you work through, hopefully. Uh, but for us... That wasn't a stage that we worked through. It was a nickname that we had. And that's not a real positive nickname, right? But friends and family, they would call us the terrible two. Makes you think kind of negative. Now, hey, the dynamic duo would sound a lot better, right? I mean, that would be a great nickname. I mean, I don't know why they didn't call us that, because that, that connotates some positive thoughts and, and a positive picture in your mind, but we were the terrible too. Well, today in our passage, I want to look at a dynamic duo that we can duplicate. And, and these people, these individuals, they're not terrible, but a terrific example of what, of what really servanthood looks like. And so before we look at the people and, and their priorities in their life, I just want to take a moment and look at the place. I just want to focus on the place. Uh, throughout our study in the book of Philippians, it's been said many times that right now, Paul, the place that he's at, he's in prison, right? He's in prison in Rome. And, and he is writing to the church at Philippi because he's, he's wondering what's going on with them. So he's, he, he is in prison. That's the place that he's at. But we really haven't talked a whole lot about the city and church at Philippi. And as I was looking at this passage, I thought, you know what, it's, it's important for us to understand 
a little bit of the background of this church and, and kind of how it came to be. And, and for us to understand that, we need to look at Acts chapter 16. And, and we're just kind of going to get 30,000 above uh, 30,000 feet above kind of overview of, of, of Acts 16 this morning. But, but in Acts 16, we see Paul is on his second missionary journey. And, and we see that he first he returns to Lystra, and his hope is to go to Asia, to all those churches and all those cities that he, that he founded on his first missionary journey, and go back and visit them. But as he's in Lystra, he wants to continue to, to go to Asia and share the gospel, but, but the Holy Spirit directed him to Troas. And there at Troas, in the middle of the night, he had this vision of a man, the man from Macedonia that came to him and said, hey, come help us in Macedonia. And Paul was determined that that was God working in his life, in his heart, and directing them that they need to go to Macedonia. And so, so they decided that they were going to go preach the gospel in Macedonia, and their first official stop in their trip to Macedonia was the city of Philippi. That was their first stop in the continent of Europe. Now, Philippi wasn't a big city, about 10,000 people. It was founded by the Greeks in the 4th century BC, and actually Alexander the Great's father named it after himself, Philip the Macedonian. But now it's a Roman colony, and the majority of the citizens there are Roman expatriates. And, and it sits on the famous Roman highway, the Via Ignatia, that connects Rome with the eastern part of its empire. And Philippi is the leading city in the district of Macedonia. It's now present-day northern Greece. That's kind of where, uh, where Philippi is located. And in Acts 16, in verses 11 to 15, we see Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they arrive in Philippi. And so they do what, what Paul always does when he gets to a city, right? On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, Except in Philippi, there was, there, there was such a small Jewish presence that there wasn't even a synagogue. So they decided they were going to go outside town and, and, and go along the river hoping to find a place of prayer. And they stumble on a group of ladies that are praying along the river. Lydia is one of those ladies. She's a merchant dealer in purple cloth, and she was God-fearing. And Paul shared the gospel with her. She listened, and God opened her heart leading her to respond in faith to the gospel. Her first step in response to hearing the gospel, to putting her faith in Jesus Christ, was to be baptized. Her second step in, in her faith was to say to Paul, hey, come stay at my house. If you consider me to be a true believer, you and your companions, come stay with me. I'll, I'll put you up. Come stay with me. And they did. And they continued their ministry in Philippi. In verses 16 to 24, we see that the ministry continues. And one day, they're on their way to a place of prayer, Paul and his companions, and they're met by a demon-possessed slave girl. She's demon-possessed. She could foretell the future, and, and she made a profit for her owners. And so day after day, as they were going to, about their ministry, going to the place of prayer, uh, she'd shout out as they went by, these are servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation. And finally, one day, Paul turns around and says, in the name of Jesus, I command the demon to come out of you. And it did, which was good news for her, but bad news for her owners, because their source of income was just lost. And they looked to make their life a little difficult because 
because Paul had done this. And so they brought them before the Roman magistrates, and they said, hey, they're, they're disturbing the city. They're promoting anti-Roman thoughts and, and customs, and they had them beaten and imprisoned. In Acts 16, 25 to 34, we see now Paul and Silas are in jail. They're in the inner jail, and all the, all the prisoners are surrounding them. And as they're in the inner jail, they start to complain, right? No, they start to sing and pray to God. And all the, all the prisoners are around them. And suddenly God moved the earth, and he removed the locks from the doors and the chains from their hands, and they were free. And this woke up the Roman jailer, and he saw the open doors, and he knew that if the prisoners escape, it meant his life was over, that he had to pay with his life. And so he drew his sword to take his own life, and Paul calls out, hey, stop, we're all here. No one has left. And immediately the jailer, the Roman jailer comes, and he gets them, and he brings Paul and Silas outside of the, of the prison, and, and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that night, that Roman jailer and all his household put their faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 40, we see Paul and Silas, they leave the jail. They return to Lydia's house where they're encouraging the believers before they leave to another city. So I think it's important for us to understand, as Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, how did it really start? It started here in Acts chapter 16, and think about this. It started with, it started with Lydia and, and, and these ladies by, by, the, by the river that were praying. It started with the, this, this demon-possessed slave girl. It started with the Roman jailer and his family. God called them to himself, and then he called them together as a church, the first church on the continent of Europe. It's estimated that Paul visited Philippi in 47 AD, and now he's writing to them, and they think it's probably 62 AD, so this is 15 years later. But that's how this little church got started, from this kind of humble beginning with this ragtag group of individuals Fifteen years later, the church is still going strong. And Paul's in prison, and he wants to write to the Philippians. And so that's kind of the place. That's, uh, that's what's happening here. Let's look at the people. Let's look at the two main characters in our passage this morning. First is Timothy. And Timothy is a young man to be, to be mentored in ministry. And we see, uh, we see Timothy is, has a special relationship with Paul. Actually, in Acts 16, the very beginning of that, Paul's in Lystra, and we see that he meets Timothy in Lystra. It says Timothy's lived there. Paul, tells, uh, Paul visited Lystra on his first missionary journey to share the gospel, and at some point, Timothy heard the gospel, and he responded and put his faith in Jesus. Luke tells us in Acts 16 that his mom was a Jewish believer and his dad was Greek. Luke also tells us that Timothy had a good reputation in town, that he was living out his faith, that, he, that his faith was active, that people recognized he was a believer by the way that he lived his life. And so, so we see Timothy is a believer who's following after God and people recognize that. Paul sees potential in Timothy but he also sees the need for some, uh, some paternal influence. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we're, we're introduced to Timothy's mom and his grandmother, right? 
His mom, uh, uh, his grandmother Lois and his mom Eunice, they had sincere faith in Jesus. And, and Paul says, I'm convinced that the same sincere faith that they had, you have, Timothy. You have the same sincere faith. But there's no dad in the picture. Commentators believe that his dad had died at some, at some point earlier in his life. And so, so there's no male influence in his life. And Paul filled that void, calling Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, my dear son. My dear son. Timothy was a believer in Jesus that Paul took under his wing and considered him his spiritual son. And, and Paul mentions Timothy 24 times in his letters that he writes in the New Testament. 24 times. So Paul picked Timothy to join his missions team and he purposed to mentor him as they ministered, traveling around, sharing the gospel. So that's Timothy, a young man to be mentored in ministry. Paul has a special relationship with them. We're familiar with Timothy. We, 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 we know who he is. We know the relationship that he has with Paul. But the next guy, Epaphroditus, is not as familiar to us, right? Timothy is mentioned 24 times in Paul's writings. Epaphroditus is mentioned twice. Here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, and Philippians 4, 18. And Epaphroditus' name implies that he comes from a pagan background. He was named after the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. So, so we know that he was born into kind of a pagan family, a pagan culture. But at some point, Epaphroditus came to faith. At some point, he heard the gospel and he trusted Christ. And now he's a member of the Philippian church who is with Paul as he's in prison in Rome. He was a member of the church now with Paul in Rome. Now, it's important for us to realize that he just kind of wasn't passing by Rome and decided to stop in, kind of like a Sunday drive, thought, well, hey, you know, I'm, I'm close by, let's just stop in. To get to Rome from Philippi, it's an 800-mile journey, 350 mi 50 miles across Macedonia, 80 miles across the Adriatic Sea, and then another 350 miles across Rome to get, across Italy to get to Rome. In the best conditions, by foot, this would take six weeks. In the worst conditions, it would take three months. He just didn't happen to be passing by. He purposed to go to Rome. He made the decision to go to Rome. And talk about a crazy travel, uh, a crazy journey to, to be a missionary, to, to go and to, to serve Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I have some crazy stories of mission trip travel, right? Uh, uh, you know, I've been on enough mission trips that I have enough crazy stories. Like, I remember one time when we were going to Honduras, and we were in the Miami airport, and, and we got to our gate with a few minutes left, and we realized that they switched our gate. And it was the whole way at the other end of the airport. And so, like, 15 of us had to be on a dead sprint to across the Miami airport to get to our gate, and we made it somehow. I don't know how, but, uh, but I remember sitting on the plane drenched in sweat thinking, thank you, Lord, that we got here. I mean, I remember driving through flooded streets in Mexico last year thinking, what in the world are we driving through all this water? I mean, I remember sitting on the, standing in the back of a truck for hours, driving through the, the jungles of Honduras to get to the place that we're going, wondering, well, how did we get here? And all of the, I remember canoe rides that, in Honduras that, I don't want to remember, and boat rides that I don't want to remember. And I've said some of these things, and I think about, these are crazy mission trip stories, but you know what? They don't pale into comparison. I haven't had to go 800 miles by foot to get someplace. You know, thankfully, we got to take, you know, some pretty um, 
modern transportation in some cases, maybe more modern than others. Uh, but, but, you know, that pales into comparison on this trip that, that Epaphroditus had to make to get to Paul, 800 miles. So why does he take the trouble to travel to see Paul? Well, in Philippians 4.18, two chapters over, it, Paul tells us, he says this, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He was sent by the church to bring an offering to Paul. We see the love of the church for Paul in this instant. Paul's under house arrest, right? And, and, and back then, the, Rome was responsible for, for providing his security, but Paul was responsible for providing his room and board. He had to pay for, for his food and, and, and for the place he was staying. And so he rented this house where he could receive visitors, and Epaphroditus was one of those visitors with a care package from the church at Philippi. And so those are the people in this passage. Now let's look at them a little more specifically and see some, some priorities for their lives and Paul's plan for these people. And in verse 19, let's talk about Paul's plan for Timothy and his priorities. And it says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may, all, that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for the, their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he's a son with his father. He served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. And so Paul's plan for Timothy is to send him to Philippi, to be cheered up by a checkup, right? Paul says, you know what, Timothy? I trust you. I'm going to send you. You go check on the, the believers at Philippi, and that will bring me great joy. Now, isn't it amazing to see Paul's pastoral heart here, right? He is in prison. Faithful Timothy is by his side. And who's he concerned about? He's concerned about others. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing to, to, to see that, you know what, that, that while he waits to see how the legal situation, the outcome of his legal situation, he wants to hear from the Philippian church. And he may be in chains, but checking up on the church will cheer him up. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to send faithful Timothy. Now, if I was Paul and I had Timothy by me, you know what I'd send Timothy to check on? I'd send Timothy to check on, hey, when is my, when's my trial coming? You know, when, when am I going to get my day in court? When, when, when is this all going to be over? Can we, can we rush this along? Uh, I'm tired of being locked up. That'd be me. But Paul says, you know what? I'm going to send Timothy to you, and, he, and, and he's going to check up on you, and he's going to bring back the report, and I'm going to be cheered up by that. And Paul says, I can trust Timothy because I see some priorities in his life. And the first priority is Timothy has a selfless devotion to serve Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Timothy has this selfless devotion to serve Jesus Christ. You know, our sinful human nature has always been and will always be bent on fulfilling our sinful, selfish desire for self-gratification, right? Right? That's, that's just the way it is. Paul writes to, to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, and he talks about this. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. 
People be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul tells Timothy here in, in, in 2 Timothy 3 that man's sinfulness and his selfishness, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So living for the Savior instead of living for ourselves, it, it was countercultural back then for, in Paul and Timothy's day, and it's countercultural for us today. But Paul says Timothy has proven to be different in his devotion. He has proven to be different in his devotion. The guiding principle of his life is to faithfully follow his Savior's direction and not follow after his own personal desires. That's a pretty amazing thing to be said by you, about you. Paul, Paul is saying some pretty high comments, high, high compliments for Timothy in this passage. And Timothy, he, he was human just like you and me. And he faced the same temptation to live for ourselves instead of our Savior. And while Timothy wasn't perfect in saying no to self and yes to the Savior all the time, he was proven. He was proven. He showed a consistent pattern of putting Jesus Christ first in his life. Timothy was proven. He proved to be selflessly devoted to serve Jesus. That was the first priority in Timothy's life. The second priority is this. He had a sincere dedication to serve others. Paul, in verse 20, says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Paul says, I have no one else. I can think of no one else who, who lives like Timothy lives. There have been many others that Paul has ministered to, how he's mentored along the way, he's come in contact with, he's had the opportunity to build in their lives, and he says, I have no one else like Timothy. I have no one else like Timothy. He shows a sincere concern for others and has faithfully cared for them. He truly cared about their welfare and their interests. It wasn't a public performance, but it was the personal purpose of his life. That's pretty amazing, right? I have no one else like him who shows genuine concern for your welfare. Man, if someone could get up at our funeral and make that statement, that'd be great. Paul says that's Timothy. He's living out his, his, Paul's words in, the, in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2 when he challenges us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. See, Timothy heard Paul talk about Jesus and how Jesus selflessly came to earth and our sinful Savior went to the cross and he sacrificed his life for our best interest, right? For what was best for us so that we could be forgiven and by faith be part of his family of faith forever. See, Jesus had our best interests in mind, and he was willing to sacrifice his life for our best interests. So he's heard Paul talk about this, and he's watched Paul live his life, a life of service, who's willing to endure imprisonment and shipwrecks and hardships and all these things for the benefit of other people, to bring the gospel to them. And so, so, so Paul hears this. 
Timothy hears Paul talking about this. He sees Paul's modeling this. And Timothy has followed the example that he's heard and saw. It's not something that's just taught, it's caught. Paul says, Timothy, you have been selflessly devoted to Jesus and you have a sincere dedication to serve others. And now Paul talks about Epaphroditus and his priorities in the last few verses here. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back Epaphroditus to you, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, not, only on, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him, you may be glad and, and I may have less anxiety. Paul's plan for Epaphroditus to say so long to a servant so he has less stress. He wants to say so long to a servant so he has less stress. Paul hoped to send Timothy to Philippi when his legal matters cleared up, but he couldn't wait any longer. So he just said, you know what? I'm going to send Epaphroditus. I'm going to send him back and check on how things are going in Philippi. And he was one of their own, and he had been to Rome to deliver their gift, and now Paul's sending him back. And at some point in, in the journey to and his time in Rome, he got sick. Epaphroditus got sick. We're not sure if he got sick on the 800-mile journey to Rome or while he was in Rome ministering to Paul and, part of, and, and, and caring for him. But he got sick to the point where he almost died. At that time, malaria and the bubonic plague were the common killers in the community, and there was no real cure. So it was serious. I mean, I mean Epaphroditus was, was, was at a bad spot. He was really, really sick. And, and the good news is that God miraculously healed him, uh, that, that he recovered from his sickness. But somehow the news of his sickness traveled all 800 miles back to Philippi, and it seems like they heard only half the story. Now, can you imagine only hearing half the story? I mean, that never happens anymore, does it? I mean, in our day of all our technology and all the ways that we can communicate, we never, ever, ever get half the story. We always get the full story. It's always real clear, right? Well, in this day, somehow half the story made its way back to, to Philippi, and they heard that Epaphroditus was, was on his deathbed, and their hearts were heavy, and they, they just heard this horrible news, and their, their hearts were heavy. And guess what? News traveled 800 miles back to Paul. He heard that the people in Philippi, they were just, they were just distressed over the news that Epaphroditus was sick. And so Paul says, you know what? I need to send you back to them so they can see you're healthy. They can see that God has healed you and they're no longer sick. And I'm no longer sick because I'm, I'm worried about them feeling sorrow about this. And so let's set the record straight. I'm sending you. They'll see you. They'll see you're healthy. And they'll praise God that he's healed you. And so that's Paul's idea. I'm going to send you back. So that, uh, so that I have no, no more stress. They'll see you, and, and I'll have no more stress. And, and why did he choose Epaphroditus? Why did he choose him to do this? Because not only did he go back to show them that he was not sick anymore, but he actually carried the letter of Philippians back to them. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Why did he choose him? Because he had this priority in his life. Epaphroditus recognized his place in ministry. He was part of a team tasked to do his part. 
He recognized his place in ministry. I'm excited that, uh, that some of you right now are, we're coming to go through a pilot program here uh, in Sunday school that working on, on what we call place, discovering your place in ministry. And, it, and I went through it, and it helped me understand kind of how I'm wired and who I am, and because and, I think it's important to understand our place, how we're gifted, so that we know where we can plug in. So I'm excited for some of you to be able to do this, and I'm excited for us to roll this out as a church uh, in the near future. But Epaphroditus, you know, he recognized his place in ministry. He was a part of a team. Look at how Paul describes him. Hey, you're my brother, my coworker, a fellow soldier. You're part of a group. You're part of a family. You're part of a company. You're part of an army. He was a companion for Christ. He was a companion for Christ. He was part of a team. They were part of the same family because they put their faith in Jesus Christ and they were adopted into to Christ's family. He says they were co-workers in, in the gospel. Some commentators say Epaphroditus was just a layman, that he wasn't an official leader in the church. And we know Paul was just this amazing upfront leader that was gifted and could speak. And people say, you know, Epaphroditus was just kind of this private, behind-the-scenes kind of servant. But you know what? They, all were, one in the, all, they were all together serving one mission to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were on the same team with the same mission. They wanted to share the gospel, and I'm going to use my gifts to do that. That was their, that was their desire. Also said they were fellow soldiers. They stood shoulder to shoulder in the spiritual battle against Satan for the salvation of other people. In Philippians 1.5, Paul is remembering the, the church in Philippi and and he's praying for them and thankful for them. He said, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And Epaphroditus was one of those partners. He was one of those partners in the gospel work. He was one of those who, who, uh, who worked together for the gospel. Paul also describes Epaphroditus as your messenger or minister to my need. And, you know, not everybody went on the journey to Rome. Not everybody did. Epaphroditus was chosen. He was chosen to represent the church, to act on their behalf, to communicate their love to Paul by giving him this gift. And he was also there to minister to his needs. He was sent to take care of their needs. And this, this is a word that kind of refers to an, to an act of priestly service in a worship setting. And so Epaphroditus' care for Paul was a sacred act of worship to God. And so and so he was part of a team, but yet he had his specific part that he needed to do. He needed to, to bring the, the, the gift to, the, to, to Paul, and, and he was there on their behalf to care for him. That was pretty amazing. He recognized his place in ministry. He was part of a team tasked to do his part. Final priority from this passage that I'm going to look at is the last two verses. It says, so then welcome him. In the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Paul, Paul tells the Philippians that, hey, Epaphroditus, he's coming back, and you need to give him the hero's welcome. You need to give him the hero's welcome. He almost lost his life for the cause of Christ. And so you need to recognize him and you need to, you need to celebrate what God has done through him. And, and, and so the priority too here is the church is, is called to celebrate sacrifice. Called to celebrate sacrifice. And when we celebrate correctly, when we celebrate what Christ is doing in and through us, it changes 
the church's culture. It changes the church's culture. It gives others courage to to say yes to sacrifice and serving their Savior. And I love the picture of community here. I love the picture of community that, that, that this displays. Our mission statement here at Mount Calvary Church is, Mount Calvary Church exists to make disciples who are passionately pursuing Christ through biblical teaching, through worship, uh, through, through service, through community, and through missions. And this is a great picture of what it looks like to be in a, in a loving community, a Christ-centered community, when our love for Christ is expressed in our love for others, we're willing to sacrifice and serve for one another. Paul served his Savior, and he served others, right? He served Timothy. He served the people uh, in Philippi, and the church at Philippi, and now it's coming full circle. And they are serving their Savior, and they're serving Paul. And I love that, that circle, that community, how when, we, when we're focused on serving our Savior and serving on others, it covers everybody. The whole community was taken care of. And in this journey of faith, we're going to face difficult circumstances, but there's joy in knowing that we belong to a community that cares for each other and is committed to the cause of Christ. So there's some important priorities that we see in Timothy's life and Epaphroditus' life. And let's just close with, with the point. With the point, our time's drawing near here quickly. And the point is this. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, I mean, it's a great chapter, right? It's a great chapter. You look at the beginning of that chapter, and who do we see? We see Jesus, and we see Paul. And when we look at their examples, we think, man, they are too lofty. They are too far above us. Jesus is the perfect son of God who has come and laid down his life for us, paying the price for our sins at the cross so we could be part of his family. And Paul Paul's this amazing guy who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life, and now he's this amazing missionary, probably the best missionary the church has ever seen. And we look at them and we think, you know what? I don't measure up to them. I don't measure up to them. I could never imitate them. And so here in, in verses 19 to 30, he gives us maybe some everyday examples, right? Some people that maybe we can uh, identify with a little bit easier. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, we can relate to them and learn from them. And here's the point that we need to learn from them. And it's very simply this. A servant says yes to sacrifice. A servant says yes to sacrifice. Timothy said yes to Jesus and yes to be willing to sacrifice to serve him. Epaphroditus said yes to Jesus and his willingness to sacrifice and serve him. A servant says yes to service and sac- to, to, to sacrifice. And you know what? It's not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing ethic. It's not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing ethic. See, you know what I do? This is what I do. Oh, Lord, I, I, I did my part, right? You know, I sacrificed last week. I, this week's not my week, you know? You know, look, look what I did at the past. Look, look you know, my, my, my record's pretty full of all these ways that I sacrificed. I'm good now, right? Wrong. Sacrifice isn't a one-time event. It's an ongoing ethic. It's an ongoing way that we live our lives. It's, 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 it's the, the driving force of how we live our lives. And why, why is it? Because, because our Savior sacrificed for us. So how can we say, you know what, I'm done. I'm good. I've done enough. No. We need to say yes to sacrifice. It's not a one-time event, but an ongoing ethic. We're called to live a life of sacrifice and service. And as a church, we're called to celebrate those who sacrificially serve the Savior. 
This morning I asked Melanie to come share her story because I remember talking to her in the hospital and her telling me this story. And, and, and I wanted her to tell the story to see how, how God can use us even when we don't want to be used. Even when we want to say no to sacrifice. God somehow gets our attention and he draws us in. He says, no, I, I need you. So she was willing to sit up half the night, have Kensia come sit on her bed, rub her back, and love her with Jesus' love. And you know what? We need to celebrate those things as a church. And we don't celebrate Melanie, we don't celebrate, but we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate him working in and through her. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. We need to celebrate that because when we celebrate that, you know what that does? That encourages us all to be open to sacrifice in areas of our life. So as we close today, just a few things I want to challenge you with. I want you to say yes to sacrifice. This week I want, to pray, I want you to pray for two things. First thing I want you to pray for is I want you to pray and ask God to reveal, are there any areas in your life where you've been selfish? It's pretty easy for me. I don't think God's going to have to go very far to, to expose those areas in my life. Uh, I'm the most selfish person you'll ever meet. But ask God to expose those areas of selfishness in our life. And, and let's just, let, let, let's repent of those. Let's ask for forgiveness of those. And then pray and ask God to show you a way that you can say yes to sacrifice and be open to willingly sacrifice and serve in that area. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to say, you know what? It doesn't matter how much I've sacrificed in the past. Because I'm determined that, you know what, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to say yes to sacrifice. We all have to say yes to sacrifice. God wants to use us all. We all have our parts of this team to do our parts, and it's just not a matter of just coming and sitting. That's not enough. It's willing to, be, to, to sacrifice. Second thing I want you to do this week is I want you to celebrate those who sacrifice and serve their Savior. Would you write three thank you notes? This week, would you ask God to put three people on your heart, on your mind, that you feel like, you know what, they do a great job of serving the Savior by, by serving other people. And would you just write them a thank you and say, hey, you know what, I thank God for your faithful example. You are such an encouragement to me. That's your homework. That's your homework. Say yes to sacrifice. It's an ongoing it's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing ethic. Our time is, is finished. I'm going to pray, and, and then uh, I'll close this up. We, we don't need to close with a song, but uh, I'm thankful for those of you here, the many of you who, who sacrificially serve our Savior. Um, they recognized me this morning, and, and I just want to say that there's nothing special about me, and, and the ministry that happens here is not because I'm here. It's because of you. And when I'm most encouraged is when I see you sacrificially serving, when you say yes to sacrifice. And I'm determined that God has great things in store for our church as we move ahead. If we're all willing to say yes to sacrifice, if we're willing to, to, to create this community here, 
that, that we love Jesus and we love one another so much that we're willing to, uh, to, to serve each other and serve him no matter what the cost. And it's going to cost something. I mean, a helper, it's convenient. A servant, it's costly. A helper gets recognition. A servant does it no matter who sees it. But I'm determined that if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we all have to say yes to sacrifice. We all have a part to play in this ministry. We're all part of this team that's tasked to do our part. And if we say yes to sacrifice and yes to do our part, you know what? God is going to use us in ways that we can't even imagine. And that's my hope and that's my prayer. And I hope that's your hope and that's your prayer too. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have just to uh, spend a few minutes in your, in your word here. And, and Lord, I thank you for these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I thank you for the clear challenge. Lord, that as we look at chapter 2 of Philippians, it's so clear that you have sacrificially served us in sending Jesus. And now you're calling us to say yes to sacrifice. Lord, forgive me when I say no. Forgive me when I say yes to myself and no to my Savior. Forgive me when I say no to sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that as, as we look forward as a church, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to realize that we're part of this community together. You've placed us here together to love one another, to serve one another, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take all of us working together as a team, doing our part, saying yes to sacrifice. Lord, help us. Help us to say yes. Because when we say yes, when we step out in faith, when we serve in the ways that you've directed, you get the honor and glory for that. And that's our desire. Your name is known. Lord, thank you for your church here. Thank you for each and every one and the gifts and abilities that you've given them. Lord, thank you that we get to serve together as a family for the good of the gospel and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close, I couldn't sleep on Tuesday night, so I did the spiritual thing. I went on YouTube. Um, and, and while I was listening to music, I was reconnected with an old friend, uh, a friend who taught me many, many years ago that friends are friends forever. And uh, I was listening to a song by Michael W. Smith, and, uh, and it's, the song's called I Lay Me Down. And I was challenged by some of the lyrics that I just kind of wanted to share with you as, as we leave this morning. And as we leave, we're going to play the song. But uh, uh, here's the second verse. Uh, Fear and failure, pride and hatred, you see all I've tried to hide. But sweet mercy has embraced me, wrath has turned to life divine. At your feet I bow in wonder, at your feet I place my crowns. Let surrender be the only sound, at your feet I lay me down. I was listening to that song and I was thinking about this passage and, and I was thinking, you know what, that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. When I say yes to sacrifice, I say yes to laying my life down. That it's not about me. It's not about looking at me. It's not about seeing whatever I do, but it's laying my life down and saying, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do. My prayer is, would we all say yes to sacrifice and be willing to lay our life down? Timothy did. Epaphroditus did. 
God's calling us to do the same. Hey, thank you so much for being here this morning.